right. Well, y'all did a pretty good job during meet and greet. That wasn't bad. Uh, there were a few of you, though, don't make me call you out. Like, we'll start posting names on the screens or something. If you're, if you're a member during that time, when he says hop out, maybe that threw you off. He used to say jump out, maybe hopping threw you off. But whatever it was, make sure you're getting out of those seats and going and finding, and especially if you're a member, heading to the, you know, the backs and the sides where our guests are hiding. So we, uh, we want them to know, that don't make them greet one another. Let them know they're, they're allowed to be comfortable. So um, I'm, I'm excited about that. It's so cool to get to keep, continue to experience that. I also would love to encourage you, especially during summer, um, because, you know, we, we have less kind of rigid like timetables during the summer a lot of times, is uh, we still have life groups running, and we have new life groups being created all the time. Um, there's a new life group that you've seen on the rotation that Lance is going to be leading, actually discussing First Peter during the week. There's a um, a life group now for college students that's running on Tuesdays. We'd love to have you involved in those. So be checking the life group page um, on our website to see are there ones you could continue to be involved in, get, get started with, all that kind of stuff. Um, churches, it turns out, large larger churches are really just multiple small churches meeting at the same time and in the same place. Uh, so you, there's really nothing, no such thing as a large church. There's just a whole bunch of gatherings of small churches at the same time. And so uh, we're excited about that. We, we encourage you to make sure you're doing that, uh, that you're connecting to the, the body of believers in small groups. Um, and, and this, by the way, this, this meeting right here does not replace that. Certainly being online does not replace that. And so make sure that you're, uh, that you're making that time and doing that kind of stuff as well. It's vital, vital. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> we will apparently, uh, based on first service, actually get through all of chapter 1 today. Exciting. First John, I mean, first John, first Peter, uh, now I'm back in John, way back. Uh, first Peter, chapter one, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Commandment number one, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. This is the first commandment in the letter of first Peter is to set your hope fully on the grace, um, not on other things. Just this, all this, your own power, your own wealth, your own control, your ability to monitor, your ability to watch, your ability to protect, don't set your hope on those. Set your hope fully on this grace. Number two, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. There you go. There's commandment number two, be holy. Um, again, we unpacked those, both of those across a few sermons going back. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father. Now, I referenced this a few weeks ago and was encouraged to bring it back on Father's Day. Um, and so we, we're not doing the traditional um, Mother's Day, Father's Day sermons, the Mother's Day sermon of mothers, you're beautiful, you're wonderful, we love you, you're awesome, and you rock. And then Father's Day this is the fathers, you stink, it's time to get to action, you need to fix, fix all the things that you've done wrong. Um, that's the kind of typical Sunday morning, uh, Mother's Day, Father's Day services. Um, but I do want to take a second and remind us all what that word really means. My theology is that when you describe a mother or a father, it isn't, it isn't that we say, gosh, how could I understand God better? I need an analogy for understanding God better. Well, you know, he's kind of like a father. And so that'll help me understand God. No, I don't believe that's how it works. I believe we have a God 
who is the ultimate, the apex, the very concept of what a father is, and has therefore put on earth this concept of father to help us understand him, but, but he's the real, we're the analogy. So as fathers, we're the analogy of what God is. As mothers, we're the analogy of what God is. His maternal traits, moms, his paternal traits, dads. And we wouldn't even have to agree on what all those were in order to be able to, to live those out. Really, parenting is nothing more than discipleship. It is discipleship. We are giving them the opportunity. We're leading our disciples. We're, we are like the rabbi leading the disciples, and where are we leading them? We ought to be leading them to a God by being an excellent example of His paternal traits, dads. Um, children naturally intuitively think of God and dad a little bit interchangeably. It's our job to guide our children, ours and others' children, to the, see the character of God. So that, so that when that day comes when they realize dad isn't God, that they don't have to do too much contortion in order to change their view from their earthly father to their heavenly father as the ultimate expression. That's our job, is to draw their head toward the Heavenly Father. None of us are perfect, but to draw their eyes and their head toward the Heavenly Father so that when they realize it's not us, they can just transition a little further. Same concept with moms. That's our job. And the way we treat them, and the way we treat their mothers, and the way we treat the authorities, and the way we treat people who cannot do anything for us, that's how we exemplify the character trait of Almighty God, the paternal traits to draw their eyes towards Him. That's our goal. So if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, commandment number three, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. <coughs> now, when this is a weird word, a weird concept. Again, we're going to talk about this in a minute. This would have been a very Jewish concept that the Jews in the audience, that was probably mostly Greek, would have had to explain what do you mean by exile? Okay, let's talk about that. But what we mean, again, you would go, well, they're living in their homes. They were probably born and raised in Asia and Cappadocia and Bithynia, the very places they live now. So they're like, how are we exiles? Well, the minute we become followers of Jesus Christ, we have a new citizenship. It's true for us as Americans. Though we are citizens of America, if we are, we are now primarily citizens of the kingdom of heaven and secondarily citizens of a, a, a nation. And our hope is not set fully on that nation, it's said, instead it is set fully on that kingdom and the Christ for whose kingdom that is. That's where our hope is, our hope is set fully. Um, so we are like exiles, we're like sojourners, we're like immigrants. We don't belong here, this isn't our home. That's not what's supposed to be like. We go, oh my gosh, this is imperfect. <coughs> Everything we look at here, we go, why does there seem to be this edge of imperfection on everything. Why does everything seem just a little bit disappointing? It's because everything is a little bit disappointing. It's because there is an edge of imperfection to everything here. I believe that's on purpose. As wonderful and, and glorious as this life can be, as awe-inspiring as it can be, as amazing as wonderful, as pleasurable, as excellent as this life can be. It is always tainted by the fact that it's not really our destination. And that's on purpose. God hardwired that in so that we would always be thinking, man, it just seems like there should be something better. Man, it just seems like there should be something more. Well, there is. 
We are exiles. We're sojourners. We are like, and we're ambassadors. We're on an ambassador ship. We've been sent into a strange land to exemplify his traits in this foreign place. So this is the exile, the sojourn. Peter wants to remind you that while we're on the sojourn, we're not abandoned there. We're not languishing here like some kind of captive, kidnapped victims. Here's what it says in verse 18. Knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So a price was paid, catch this, a price was paid to reunite you to him. A price was paid to reunite me to him. We were redeemed from something. We were ransomed from something. There's so many different ways, as I mentioned last week, to answer this question. What were we redeemed from? What were we ransomed from? There are whole lines and schools of theology that answer that question in so many different ways. Peter's going to focus on just one way here. That we were, inherit, we were ransomed from the empty ways, the feudal ways of life inherited by our forefathers. Now notice, it says here, that Jesus took the role of a sacrificial lamb, his blood to pay the price, quote, like a lamb without blemish or defect. This is one of those moments. It's one of those moments where I want, you, I want to put you in the situation, okay, it's put, you, put you in the context. 2,000 years ago, when you have this, this little home church that's somewhere in Bithynia, maybe they're even in hiding, from the Romans or from the government, and they're in hiding, and they're in this little home church, and they've got a copy of Peter's letter. And let's say there's you know, 15, 16, a dozen so Greek believers, Greek converts, and they don't have generation upon generation upon generation upon generation of Judaism in order to take this puzzle piece that is this new gospel, this new covenant that fits perfectly into the puzzle piece created for it. They don't have that. They grew up with a religion that's absurd. They grew up with Greek paganism that's just ridiculous. If you, if you remember your Greek myths, remember ninth grade reading, studying the Greek myths if you're in public school, and how ridiculous they seem? It was like, it was like the ancient version of the Kardashians or something, right? I mean, they're not, they're not godlike at all. They're just like extreme humans except just a little extra with a little extra resources and a little extra foolishness. Like, it's like, wow, they're, they're awful. Like, they're just, ugh. It's like watching a train wreck every time you read one of the myths. It didn't have this sense of like, this is going to go well because they're gods. No, it was the opposite. You're going, well, this is going to be entertaining because it's going to go so badly. That's what, that's what the Greek myths were like, and that's where the Greeks tried to set some faith in those gods. They had to question constantly the, re, the, the, the reality of how, how silly that must have felt. <coughs> so here they are. All these Greeks who are converts to Christianity, they learned about Christ, probably before they learned about Yahweh, before they learned about Adonai, they learned about Christ. And so Peter's saying, no, you're, you're going to see this in a second, your faith is in, is in God because he's the one who resurrected Jesus from the dead, but we'll get there in a second. But here I want you to imagine, here you have these Greeks, and they're all sitting here, and one of them's reading this letter out, and they get to this section. He was a lamb without blemish or defect. And the Greeks are all going, I mean, what? I mean, what, uh, somebody help us out here. What does this mean? Meanwhile, 
The Greeks looking at their Jewish members of their church are saying once again, help, help us out here. And I imagine these, I picture one or two Jewish converts in every population grinning or maybe with tears of realization because maybe they had never put these pieces together. If you had that experience the first time you, for example, did Passover as a Christian and seeing pieces sliding into place and wondering, how did I not know about all these pieces until just now? How did I not know that this is what communion is all about until now? How did I miss this? That maybe, in fact, grinning because of realization or maybe with tears of realization, these Jewish believers would begin quoting from memory what we now call Exodus chapter 12, verses 5 through 8, what they would have called the first Passover. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. And when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill the lambs at twilight, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two door pieces, door posts, and the lintels of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. See, they caught it. They would have caught it immediately when, when Peter says the word, he was like a lamb without blemish or defect. They would have already finished that passage in their minds. It was always him. That Passover that we took with our fathers and our grandfathers and that they took with theirs and that we've been taking for thousands of years now, it was always him. But I always think it's going to be funny. Peter's creating these conversations between the Jews and the Greeks that only the Jews can explain. The Greeks are totally lost with this stuff. The Greeks would be going, wait a minute, okay, what does it mean a lamb without blemish or defect? And the Jews would go, oh, Passover. And the Greeks would go, that's no help. What's Passover? They would go, oh, oh, it's when the ten plagues were visited upon Egypt. And the Greeks would go, plagues? And the Jews would start realizing what is going to have to be explained here. Well, see, there was this guy named Moses. Who's Moses? Oh, no. And so imagine, imagine at some point the Jews are like, in the beginning, God created the heavens. And I'm like, they're going to have to go back and explain all that. I love the idea of Peter creating these conversations between the early believers. I feel like it's, at times there are times when there's a few people who I reach out to that I feel like I need that at times, even today. Like, I wish there was a, a, like a, a Jewish interpreter, but I need a 2,000-year-old Jewish interpreter to be sitting here and sometimes going like, oh, that matters. Wait, stop. Let me tell you what that means. And he could tell me, and then I could tell you and go like, look at that. Like it would need to be sitting up here and stop like mm -mm, this. That was what was important. It's so tough for us, and yet it was tough for them too in the first century. All these Greek believers going, what are you talking about? The lamb chosen for the Passover before the creation of time? Before the universe began? Who does this? Who is this God? A God who gave his own blood for me? Do you remember when we were at the end of John, like the last eight chapters of John? Over and over again, we kept saying, who is this God? Who, who is this guy? Who does this kind of thing? Who throws a party at a crucifixion? He invites everyone to be there, and he draws everybody there. He drags everybody to the crucifixion, his own crucifixion. Who does that? That's not something gods do. Zeus doesn't do that. Ridiculous. That's goofy. And this is a God instead who it was known that he would do this before God ever wound the first clock. Before there was time, before the creation of time. So Jesus exhibits this idea to his disciples. He's teaching them how to do this for those three years. 
They're learning to make these connections. And so Peter now is making the same connections as Rabbi did over and over again. Jesus is showing his students how the story, the imagery, the very history was all pointing to this new covenant, this, this good news, this, this person of Jesus Christ. And Peter here is going to try. When you read through Peter, you see him trying again and again and again to make it clear to us, to put it into language that will make sense to us. I totally identify with that. We're going to get to a section here in a minute that I, I got excited about and was totally flummoxed by and confused by all week and finally put the pieces together. And I realized during first service, I'm still not communicating it well. Like I'm, I'm going like, isn't that cool? And everybody's going, we're not, we're not following you. We're not, we're not. That's going to happen again in a minute. You watch. Watch how this happens, okay? So here we have, I get his efforts. Before the foundation of the world, Peter says, to initiate the cosmos themselves, the sowing before the sowing of reality, God our Father, God our Judge, God had a plan to ransom us before anything else existed. He had a plan to ransom us with His Son, Jesus Christ, before there was such a thing as forever. Boggles the mind. Keep in mind God the Father, and then on top of that, He then takes the role of the Redeemer in that plan. He has been foreknown and his plans for us since before there was a forever and it has only recently been revealed, Peter says. How special they must have felt. You, you get that sense that they're going, we, we got to be there for it. We got to see it happen. We got to see this forever plan, before forever plan, being unveiled. And it's been revealed now for some special people. Who? Who's it revealed for? Here you go. For you... And you, this you means you if through him you are believers in God. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in him. I was curious about this after reading this. I don't know if I would be a believer in God without Christ. I don't mean this theologically like could I. I mean all things being equal. If I hadn't been introduced to Jesus Christ, would I be a theist? And I wondered about that. My brain kind of ran with that. I've, I've I know I was reminded again this week, my brain doesn't run in the same direction as a lot of people's a lot of time. And this is one of those. Would I have been a bare theist if I didn't know Christ? Perhaps I would, but certainly I wouldn't be drawn to a God who created a plan to ransom me. I would never have come up with that. I think my natural intuition would be to think of God as a far-off thing, an, an impersonal uh, force out in the universe, a creative force that just does things. Kind of like those of you who study this type of stuff, the God that Einstein believed in or that Spinoza believed in, this, this kind of amorphous God-universe thing out there, maybe, maybe I could have been convinced in that. But the idea that through Christ I have found a loving Father, not an impersonal God, but a loving Father, a just judge, a God who strategized a plan to redeem me. And if, you don't, if that doesn't stand out to you, I've not taught it this way, but Ginger and I are watching through The Chosen. I know I've referenced it a few times recently. The idea that Jesus went to Samaria just to talk to the woman at the well. That concept is such a beautiful... I don't know if that's true in that exact story. I've not ever taught it that way. But the idea that that's exactly what's going on throughout all of human history. So from that sense, absolutely, that God planned in advance before He created anything to choose you and me is incredible. And, and he is revealed by God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. That's, again, a stunning concept. 
Philippians 2, one of our favorite passages around here, Philippians 2, 8 through 11, Paul, the Apostle Paul, makes us really powerfully clear how this plays out. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In the end, that's it. There are plenty of authorities, friends, and others who speak into our lives, but ultimately only he is Lord. There is a God, and that God has spoken, and every being ever created in the cosmos one day will acknowledge that. Fascinating to see what that looks like. In the end, my faith and my hope are fully in Him, which is what Peter is telling us. I hope that's true for you. I hope your hope is fully in Him. So far, three of the four commands in this section, and we're about to get to the fourth one. Put your hope fully on His grace. He has chosen us despite our lack of merit. That's one. Be holy. Live as people set apart by, by an extraordinary God for His sacred purposes. That's two. Conduct yourselves in fear. Recognize there is only one Father, one Judge, one Redeemer, and live in reverent awe of His power and His love. That's three. Now for commandment four. And commandment four is fascinating because it's different from the other three. All three of those are what we call vertical when it comes to relationships. They're between me and God. Am I setting my hope fully on Him and His grace? Am I fearing Him? Am I living in holiness under Him? Those are, those are vertical in nature between me and God. But remember what Jesus said, this is not surprising, that of course rule number four or, or construction number four is going to now spread outward. That shouldn't surprise us. What are the great, what's, what's the one great commandment, Jesus says? They, they corner Him. Just one. You only can pick one. You know he's going to play by that rule, right? You only get to pick one. He says, the Shema, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> See, two. There's one, and this one. There's only one that really matters, and then this one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. How will people know we are His disciples? What does it say? by our love for one another. Listen, do you want to be part of a club if they don't like each other? Does that sound like fun? We don't even like each other. We don't love each other. Come join us. Yeah, no thanks, right? That's the, that's the foundation. Yeah, they want to know we love them too, but they know whether we're even capable of loving them on whether or not we love one another. That's not a surprise. And that's exactly what Jesus says here. Verse 20, I mean, uh, Jesus through Peter says here, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. The command is love one another earnestly. But we've got to work our way there because this is the verse that messed me up this week. I don't like this verse. Um, purify your soul by obeying the truth. That's the beginning. Having purified your soul by your obedience to the truth. I have trouble with this passage. Like I said, I could tell in the first service, I don't yet know how to put it into words. I actually, between the services, reorganized it. So maybe this will make a little more sense. Here's what I read. That somehow, I cause me to be pure. What pure? Purity of motive? Purity of action, 
Humans have only that type of purity in relative terms, more or less, but never purity. I can be more or less pure in my actions or more or less pure in my motives, but I'm never pure, never perfectly pure in anything. It's just not possible. It's not something humans do. We don't, we don't create that. We don't, we don't cause that. It's, it's one of the reasons why, again, I tell you, I say humanism is such a joke and, and such a tragedy, the idea that, that we look to one another to find our salvation or purpose or value or whatever. How, how silly. Do you not yet know that you can't even trust your own motives purely? And even when you do think you can trust your own motives purely, that you can't trust your own follow-through purely? Do you, have you not yet figured this out about yourself? If that's true about you, then you're going to look to the human race for that? That's ridiculous. And that's when I read this passage, I'm going, I have a huge problem with this idea that I'm responsible for purifying my soul in the truth. That sounds to me like washing a dirty dish with a dirty rag in dirty water. Well, that'll help, right? I don't buy it. So I had to go back to the beginning. So start there. Remember that this whole letter is to encourage a suffering and scattered saints. And the entire first chapter and much of the second one is Peter trying to remind them of the greatness of their salvation in a dozen different ways. This is how great the salvation is. This is how great the salvation is. This, it's different analogies and parables and stories meant to help us understand just how great the salvation is that we've been given. It's meant to encourage them. It's meant to exhort them. You might say the message of chapter 1 of 1 Peter is, God chose you. What is our role then in purifying our souls? Well, one hint came to me in the fact that this is plural. In us purifying our souls. In the Greek, it's plural. And how could that connect to a for a brotherly love? Come back to the plural in a second and the brotherly love. The Holy Spirit, it says, in the beginning of this chapter, is what sanctifies us. Remember? Sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Same root word, purified. So the Holy Spirit is who purifies us then. So how am I supposed to purify myself? There must be some type of exchange going on here, I decided. There's an exchange going on here. Here's what I mean. Um, go all the way back to Abraham. So when I say go back to the beginning, I don't mean way further back than First Peter, all the way back to Abraham in Genesis. In Genesis 15, 6, we get this fascinating little verse, and a lot of theology is built on it all through the New Testament. You have Abraham, and Abraham, it says, Abraham believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. See, this is key to understanding human beings. This is an exchange rate. Abraham goes to the, you imagine, Abraham goes to the spiritual bank someday and finds it's full of righteousness. And Abraham goes, well, I don't remember depositing any righteousness. I didn't put any righteousness in the bank. I just trusted you. And God goes, isn't that sweet? There's some more righteousness in the bank. Like, no, no, no. No, no, I didn't put righteousness in. I just fell on, fell on my face before you and trusted you, God. That's all I've got is I can trust you. That's all I've got. And God goes, and there's more righteousness. See, the closest as humans that we come to righteousness is faith. And so if there's going to be any righteousness in our account, it's going to have to be a transfer. 
It's going to be an exchange. God says, I'll take, your, I'll take your faith. I'll take your trust. I'll take your desire to follow me. I will take your willingness to be conformed to me. I will take your willingness to be convinced of the truth of my gospel. And you know what? I'm going to just call that righteousness. We're going to take that and we're going to call it righteousness. And then you've got righteousness building up in the bank. It's an exchange rate. Okay? So we have a role in the purification of our souls then. Just like Abraham has a role in getting righteousness. But it's not getting righteousness. It's having faith. So look back at, first, at this passage in 1 Peter. What is our role in the purification of our souls? Obedience. We obey, and that act of faith, obedience, is what purifies us. So let's say I tell Emma to go take a bath. So I tell my daughter, you know what, go take a bath. What purifies her? What gets her clean? The bath, right? How does she get the purification of the bath? Obedience. She does what I tell her to do. This, this I think, is the key to unwrapping how this works. It doesn't work unless I'm doing it God's way. His actions, His timing, His methods. We see it in the life of Jesus Christ. We see it in the life of Jesus Christ Himself. Remember, Jesus, though God, experienced life as a human, and one of the things humans have to do is learn obedience. It tells us that Jesus learned obedience. That's, it's, we're that bad at it that in order for Jesus to understand to experience life as a human, He had to learn it. He had to learn obedience as part of his experience here, though God. What do you see in the temptations between Jesus and Satan? Satan saying, hey, you know what? Why don't you make some bread out of those stones? And Jesus says, quotes Deuteronomy and essentially says, I think I'm not going to do it your way. You know what? What if you, what if you climbed up on the pinnacle of the temple? Let's get up on the pinnacle of the temple and you could throw yourself off. And when, you've, when the angels float you to the ground... Uh, um, Oh, I'm blanking on his name. Tony Evans has a great sermon where he, talk, he breaks these down. And he breaks down the temptation of Christ like this. That they're all, he's quoting Deuteronomy, on the edge of every one of these is about obedience. I'm going to throw myself from the temple mount, and then the angels will, will protect me. And Jesus says, yeah, but not at your instruction, I'm not going to do it. Not your way. God hasn't told me to do that. See, if God told Jesus to climb up on the pinnacle and jump, he would have just done it. But Satan telling him to do it means nothing to him. No, no, see, I don't obey you. I only obey one. This is the obedience. Even Jesus showing us the purification that he had through his obedience. All And by the way, not just obedience, but obedience to the truth. All truth is God's truth. And obeying something that's false won't help. So imagine if I send, if I send Emma to the bath and I go, Hey, Emma, go take a bath. And she goes and jumps. She obeys me. She goes, but what she does is jump in a puddle instead. Is she going to get clean that way? Yeah, no, no clean that way. To obey the, anything other than the truth does not lead to purification. Or just total disobedience. You know what? I'm not going to go take a bath. I'm going to go play with my toys instead of taking a bath. I'll be able to tell. But how will I be able to tell? Because she's not clean. Right? The obedience is the key, and obedience gets us there. Okay, so you're following this? Obedience, I think, is the exchange rate for purification. We can't purify ourselves, but we can obey. And when we obey, what happens is we are purified in the obedience that we have in Him. 
But there's more. We don't just obey, we obey the truth. And it's not just that, there's more. When we obey the truth, we, this phrase, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. This totally threw me out. Now, now I'm going, wait, how, what does that have to do with a sincere brotherly love? But keep, So now come back to remember, it's a plural. When we do this, when we trust Him and we obey, this unites us. What unites us is our obedience. That's what unites us as followers of Jesus Christ, is the purification that comes through obedience. But I want to do it my way. Fine. But you don't get to. You do it His way. But I want to play in the puddle. I get that. I really do. I get it. But I said take a bath. But I want to play with my toys. Sure, right. I, listen, I totally understand. And yet, you need to take a bath. Obedience is the key here. And here's what, here's what stunned me. This creates a family that is united in one thing. The purification that comes in obedience. Think about for a minute, and just in this room, what unites us? Does age unite us? No. Sex? No. Color of our skin? No. Our backgrounds? Our wealth? Our attractions? The sins we fall into? Or the really important stuff like our sports teams? Or our video game platforms we prefer? Like these... These are big issues that really divide, understandably. So then what unites us? Our obedience to Jesus Christ, to His truth. That's what unites us. And, and it's the only thing that we need to unite us. It's the only thing that needs to unite us. Everything else can be different. Everything else can be different about us. Well, the only thing that has to be the same is that we obey Jesus Christ and we put our faith fully in Him. That's what unites us. That makes us a, a family. We are a family, and that's our last name, Christian. Follower of Jesus Christ. That's our last name. That's what unites us. Maybe nothing else. We're all adopted orphans anyway. We're all adopted into this family. What else would unite us? Can't think of a single thing except being adopted in this family. That's command, And then commandment four comes from that. Therefore, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. The word, first word, students especially, y'all remember this? Is the word philos, brotherly love, friendship love, fondness love. This last fall we taught about these. This word is the word agape, devotion, sacrifice, charity. So because you're a family, because there is this brotherhood, this sisterhood, now you can love one another sacrificially. You can love one another like nobody else can love. Because you have this obedience, and I'm telling you to do it. The next step, the application to this identity as members of the brotherhood and sisterhood, the family of the chosen, the family of the sprinkled, the family of the purified, the hopeful, the holy, and the fearful, is that we set our hope fully here with Him. We are holy under Him. We conduct ourselves with fear of Him. And now we love one another earnestly with a pure heart. It's poetic. It's just beautiful. And why? Because we've been born again. There you go. Peter's got to add one more foundational concept here at the end. Because we've been born again. That's why we can do this. It's the same word that his rabbi used with Nicodemus. 
In John 3, Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus asked, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. So what makes the spirit birth better than the flesh birth? There's a problem with moving slowly through a book like this. Remember, that's why we read it from beginning to end. Actually, I had it quoted to us beginning to ending at the beginning. Is because we might miss, this is the second time Peter has done this. Blessed be 1 Peter 1.4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. There it is again. He calls us to be born again. Now, surprising that Peter keeps coming back to this. My first birth and yours was perishable. We were born perishable and we will perish. Every one of us the body that your mother gave birth to will die someday, every one of us. Barring maybe a rapture, that's the only hope you've got for that not being the case. Flesh is perishable. What about the second birth? Here's what Peter says. It is, quote, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever. Here, 1 Peter dives into Isaiah 40, and we could spend months here. This is the same passage about the voice in the wilderness that, that John the Baptist cites about himself. This is, the, this, is the, this is when Isaiah is told to comfort the people of Israel. Not to, not, always it's been to confront, and now it's to comfort. And you've got to love how realistic this is. Check out the, what's supposed to be comforting. Uh, you heard um, Colson reference it earlier. Hey, I've got good news great news. Comfort everybody with this good news. A voice says cry. And I say, what shall I cry? It doesn't mean weep. It means announce, proclaim. What's this good news I get to proclaim? Isaiah's all excited. What's this good news I finally get to proclaim for a change? And here's the answer. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are like grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. Yay! God considers it good news that we recognize we don't have what it takes. You can't do this. You're grass. That's it. Yay. But you know better. Here's what's good news. You know better than to trust in the grass. Last line, but the word of the Lord, the word of our God will stand forever. Jesus uses this reference several times. They love this reference in the New Testament. And Peter ends this reference by saying, the word of our God will stand forever, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. This word will stand forever. You put your faith there, put your hope fully there, and you will be born again imperishable. Not weep or mourn. Proclaim this good news. It is founded in His truth. He has spoken it. That is all that's needed. His word has been declared. You will live forever. How can I know that? Because I said it, he would say. You don't need anything beyond that. I told you it's imperishable. It's imperishable. We were ransomed. Here's what I saved for the end of this. We were ransomed. We said, we talked about where we're ransomed from. 
right? We talked about that. What are we ransomed from? And, and who are we ransomed by? But what I didn't do is what? What are we ransomed by? What is the payment for the ransom? I want you all to hear this. What was the payment of the ransom? We were ransomed, quote, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. See, not that junk. God says, I'm going to ransom you. I'm going to purchase you. I'm going to redeem you. This was the plan before the creation of time to redeem you. And it's not with the cheap stuff, right? This isn't dollar store stuff. This isn't the cheap stuff. This isn't the junk. This isn't the refuge. This isn't the waste. This isn't the bargain basement stuff. That's not how I see you. I see you as worth paying the ultimate value for. Not that trash like silver and gold. Not bitcoins and diamonds. But the most valuable commodity that has ever existed in all of the universe, all of creation since before the creation of time. We were purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The most powerful commodity, the most precious commodity ever. Despite what you or anyone else thinks, Peter makes it clear, and I don't want you to miss it, that God apparently thought you were no bargain basement discount article in the rubbish bin. He paid the best that has ever been paid to redeem you and me. That's how badly He wants you. That's how badly He wants me. So I don't want you to miss this. See, we do, we do every week, we do an altar call slash invitation time. We don't do that just out of tradition. Um, it's, it's a habit. Sometimes people will be like, oh, you know, we're, we're running on edge. I'm going to go ahead and bail out and just miss that part. And I urge you not to do that. That, that you, we should be assuming God has something for us. The gospel has been presented. And, and at least sanctification needs to happen in all of our lives to be made more holy. But for some... You maybe have never allowed God to adopt you. You've never accepted the free gift of the, of the adoption that He's offering you that He's reaching out to you with. And I don't want you to miss that, and I don't want any of us to be a distraction from someone who's wrestling through that. And in fact, I would say we either sing or we're desperately in prayer for the people who are wrestling in that moment. Part of why I as an individual, even when I speak in places that don't have an altar call, I still like to do them, is from this story. And I want to encourage you with this to be considering on October 8th of 1871, D.L. Moody, the famous pastor, held his usual service on the Sunday evening. It's when I heard this story that I realized I, I, I wanted to do an altar call. It was the fifth Sunday in a series. This night he preached to the largest congregation that he had ever addressed in Chicago. He preached on the text, quote, What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Well, that's a response sermon if there's ever been one. At the close of the service, he did not call for an immediate decision. No one knows exactly why. He said, I wish you would take this, listen to this, I wish you would take this text home with you, turn it over in your minds during the week, and next Sabbath we will come to Calvary and we will decide what to do with Jesus of Nazareth. That night, at about 9 p.m., the great fire of Chicago began. It lasted until early Tuesday. This, rapid, this fire rapidly spread, killing approximately 300 people, destroying three square miles of Chicago, and leaving 100,000 residents homeless. The series was over. The church had been burned to the ground. And no one was able to return the next week. At least a few, probably because they had died in the fire. Moody, from that point forward for the rest of his ministry, always invited people to respond immediately to God's Word. Immediately. He never again was willing to, not, to have people wait. I want to encourage you, today you have heard a voice in the wilderness 
crying of a great salvation. I would urge you, if you've never accepted that salvation, not to ignore that call again today. If you want to learn more about it, or if you want to understand it, or if you've got something else that you know God is working on your soul to sanctify you, and you want someone to pray with you, there'll be somebody over there in that corner, or you can come up here and pray with any of us who are up here, or you can grab anyone in the room who you know is a prayer who knows Jesus, and they would love to pray with you. I'm confident. Wherever you are in this, I would say to obey the call to come join the family. So let me pray. Um, now, get, stand if you will, and let's pray. And I'd love to encourage us to respond however the Spirit wants us. Father, we're so grateful for the goodness of Your Word. We're so grateful for the power of Your Gospel, of Your good news. I pray that, that there will be those who today, who have never accepted that free gift, will do so today. And will let us know so we can celebrate with them. Lord, I pray You're working in every single person's heart including mine. That the power of the identity that you've given us, the power of the purification that we get to experience just through simple obedience, starting with the answer of the call to come and follow you. Lord, I thank you for this. I pray that you would guide us today during this time in your son's magnificent name. Amen. Also, if you've been through the Welcome Home team and you're ready to come and join this dysfunctional family, you can do that this morning. Um, just listen to what the Spirit has for you and obey.